Hello once again to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Hope you all are having a good evening. I know I am, and hard to believe tomorrow starts the middle of the week. Where does the time go? Not sure, but hey, regardless, we're at the middle of the week starting tomorrow. Well, we are um, on to another uh, fun-filled session on Steve Vogel's book, Through the Perilous Fight, From the Burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner, The Six Weeks That Saved the Nation. You know, six weeks seems like a short period of time, but in reality, six weeks from the burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner to the Battle of Baltimore, you know, there's a lot going on in the United States at this time. Six weeks can define so many things. And based based off of what we're learning now, especially from a few podcast sessions back about the burning of Washington and where we are now, so much has taken place. We've seen the worst and now we're getting we're gradually seeing the better. We already had uh, discussed last night that a small skirmish took place at Cox Field but it resulted in an American victory. And it, is, it appears as though the gray clouds have finally been lifted for us in the Chesapeake campaign. But we also talked last night about uh, a man named Dr. William Beans and how, for one, he was a prominent um, individual in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, but two, Dr. Beans was caught in a bad crossfire. First off, the British, right before the burning of Washington takes place on August the 24th of 1814, two days earlier, the British arrive. They come in under a flag of truce uh, accord. Dr. Beans accepts the flag of truce. He even allows Major General Robert Ross into his home, along with other uh, soldiers of various rank and file, He gives these men, including Major General Robert Ross, an array of goods. He even goes as far as to giving them horses. Well, you have to have a way to get around besides walking, and if you can move around by horse, that's definitely a step up in the right direction. But to make matters worse, a few days after the burning of Washington, when the British leave, Dr. Beans seems to rejoice but who wouldn't? Sadly, though, Dr. Beans got caught up in a bad moment. Not on purpose, but he didn't realize that the moment he had gotten himself caught up in would be one that would accidentally backfire on him in many bad ways. What happens? You've got British um, soldiers who are still terrorizing Upper Marlboro and um, doing things that um, make the uh, residents very suspicious. And Dr. Beans uh, catches a man or two um, trying to steal stuff from his vegetable garden or, or um, other another personal belonging or, or two. So Dr. Beans and um, a Robert Bowie, who was the former governor of Maryland, had um, gotten a hold of these men and placed them under a prison watch uh, 10 miles away in uh, Queen Anne. Well, what do you know? Those who were not caught did escape. They escaped back to safety. They alert Major General Robert Ross of what's going of what had happened. 
what do you know? Dr. Beans got arrested. He didn't so much get arrested. He was literally taken away by sheer force in the middle of, a of the night from his home without any arrest warrant, any uh, proper uh, cause in terms of a proper what we would call search and seizure or a uh, search warrant. Of course, you know, the British don't care about that stuff. They just want to get revenge. So now on to our primary discussion here. Where is Francis Scott Key when he receives the news of Dr. Beans' arrest? Well, he is in Georgetown helping out with defense preparations should the city be attacked by the British. Now remember, folks, here we are in 1814. How are we going to learn about breaking news for this day and time? We obviously don't have a television. We don't have telephones. Of course, the telephone isn't going to be invented for at least another 60 years, um, in part by Alexander Graham Bell, but we still have a ways to go before we get to that milestone. You can learn about the news through a newspaper. However, newspapers aren't delivered daily to people, and by the time you get the newspaper, the news could be at least a week or two old. So the most common way to hear about news that is right on the spot and can be classified as breaking is by means of someone riding on horseback to deliver a piece of urgent news to you in the form of um, verbal, in terms of verbal communication. So his brother-in-law, Richard West, is the one that shares him the breaking news. Now, all of Francis Scott Key's friends know that he is a very prominent lawyer. They know just what a distinguished record he has. He's gone before the United States Supreme Court. He has established successful practices in Frederick, Maryland, and one in uh, Georgetown, um, right on the outskirts of D.C. So all of his friends are going to help persuade Francis to put together a mission seeking the release of Dr. Beans. And was Francis Scott Key a smart choice? Absolutely. For one, he's got major connections with the government and also through being a, a good lawyer. Both of those um, advantages are going to bode well. But do you think this is going to be a mission that's going to be a piece of cake? No, no. Does President Madison approve of Francis Scott Key being part of a mission to help seek the release of Dr. Beans? Yes. And will Francis Scott Key himself be accompanied by anybody else? Absolutely. John Stuart Skinner. We talked about him earlier on from uh, one of the early podcast sessions, and he... Um, is the American prisoner of war agent. He was also the inspector of mail that came into the United States from uh, overseas. He also is the one that had to um, coordinate the schedules for sailings, and uh, not just for sailings that came into Annapolis, Maryland, for sailings that were departing out of the United States um, to leave, to go on to Europe. He is in constant communication with British ships. So, does he know many of these prominent British men? Yes, he knows who Rear Admiral George Coburn is. He also knows who Rear Admiral um, Alexander um, Cochrane is. Uh, 
He also knows who Major General Robert Ross is as well. The guy's got connections. And are these connections good? Yes. On one hand, could they be controversial? Perhaps. But, but he knows the, all the ins and outs with the British. After all, he is a veteran of many dealings with them. This is a guy you want. If you don't have him, who are you going to have who is just as good as he is when dealing with these guys? If Dr. Beans wasn't released by the British, where could he have been sent to prison? Well, I'll tell you this, he wouldn't have stayed in the United States. Even in the days of the American Revolution, British, British um, officers who had uh, men of our, from our own country in prison, being you know, Americans or from the Continental Army or just innocent civilians in general, they would often get sent to Halifax, Nova Scotia. They would go there so this way they would be kept as far away from family, far away from, from those who, who would have risked anything to have uh, released their prison. So this is where Dr. Beans would have gone, and had he gone there, he never would have seen his family from Maryland again. Here's somebody else we ought to point out. Who is General John Mason? He is the head commissary general of prisoners. He is a very close confidant to President Madison. He was with him through the darkest hours after the British had burned Washington. And what do you know? General John Mason is the son of Patriot George Mason. The son of Virginia Patriot, I should say, George Mason. Well, George Mason was a prime key player behind many significant um, works in the, um, what do you call it, in the road to establishing independence, not just for Virginia, but for the 13 colonies as a whole. George Mason was famous for his Virginia Declaration of Rights. He was also very instrumental in behind the implementation of the um, Bill of Rights, or what we now know as, know as our first ten um, amendments. So, General John Mason is a prominent merchant, banker, and landholder in Washington. He basically, a, a head commissary general of prisoners, what that means is that he oversaw the rules pertaining to how prisoner exchanges were to be conducted. He believed that Dr. Be that Dr. Beans was immune from truce agreements. How so? Because once these uh, British captives had been taken prisoner by Dr. Beans and Governor, or I should say, pardon me, former Governor Robert Bowie, Major General Robert Ross and his men had already left Upper Marlboro. So in other words, once they were out of that jurisdiction, they really had no proper authority to come back into Upper Marlboro and say, hey, we're arresting you because you violated our, our terms. So, do I think that's a good uh, case in point? Absolutely. 
It's one thing to have conducted business in one area, but once you had left those grounds, your, um, your actions, or should I say your official act of business, didn't really have any other uh, true significance in the next town or two over. But of course, the British play by their own rules. And yes, as, as an American, you can say, oh, well, the agreement was made here. How can it be violated when, when the incident didn't take place elsewhere and the British were not in the same place at this given moment? You can argue your case all you want, but the British will ha find every way in the book to twist and tweak to where they can still have the upper advantage and um, impose their own um, might on you. As for General John Mason, he addressed a letter, which I thought was rather interesting. He addresses this letter to Colonel William Thornton, a British officer who led the charge across the bridge at Bladensburg, which led to um, the, the first and second American, American militia or America, American military lines to break and basically uh, retreat to where there was no end in sight. But basically, he writes this letter to Colonel William Thornton stating that wounded British soldiers had been treated very humanely by the American forces. The British prisoners of war had written letters to their uh, commanders, especially Major General Robert Ross, and in these letters it emphasized their levels of respect toward the American side. In other words, these British prisoners were well treated. Here's a question that requires a lot of um, deep thought. Was Francis Scott Key very optimistic about securing Dr. William Beans' release? I think we all would like to say yes, but in actuality, the opposite is no. The answer is no, being the opposite. Francis Scott Key is very worried about our nation's state of well-being, which included an overall outlook for peace itself. And all of this can be true to back it up, because while he's en route to Baltimore, he sees... Washington in ruins, including the Capitol building. He even sees bodies of dead men in various spots around Bladensburg. His prospect or hope for peace overall is not very strong. All of this uh, bad stuff that he has witnessed is a bad reminder of what had just taken place earlier, and those scars are still fresh. He's thinking to himself, will Washington remain our nation's capital or will we have to relocate, say, back to Philadelphia? Could we go to Annapolis, Baltimore? Could we even go as far west as Cincinnati, Ohio, or Lancaster, PA? Because these were all options, people, to relocate our nation's capital to in the aftermath of the burning. This was real stuff. So... America, in Francis Scott Key's eyes, is on the fringe of existence, and he is right. 
Now, I mean, given that our capital has been completely burned, how can we expect to have any sign of hope in the midst of a terrible crisis? Francis Scott Key is an optimistic person, but when you but when you see how he has witnessed all this destruction, not just in terms of a burning of buildings, but dead bodies of, of people from our own country lying in different localities or different um, spots, it's a bad omen. It's a bad sign of of uncertainty that's still there. So he's thinking to himself, are are the people of Baltimore going to be able to do a better job? than what the Madison administration had done in Washington. He believes it's possible, but he's going to have to see for himself what Baltimore, what the people of Baltimore have done because it's going to be a sign or an indication of whether we as a country are going to make it or break. Well, on Sunday, September 4th of 1814, Francis Scott Key arrives into Baltimore. He is actually encouraged by what he sees in Baltimore, although he sees the city as more of a garrison, that is, a fort. Um, he sees uh, military personnel everywhere comprised of troops, cavalry, and then he sees supply wagons containing an array of stuff that the cavalry and um, just troops themselves will need in general. On the other hand, though, the city still has exposed cracks on the outside of the eastern flank. Now, the area around the eastern flank is known as Hampstead Hill, and Key himself knew that all of that was well um, fortified, but outside that eastern flank, it still concerns him that, hey especially to the southwest of Baltimore being Washington, D.C., he knows right away that the British could launch an attack. Now, is Francis Scott Key in command of the mission to rescue Dr. William Beans? The answer is no. That goes to John Stuart Skinner, who we uh, talked about just a moment ago. He is the U.S. agent for the prisoner of war exchanges. Skinner and Key are going to be a great team, though. They both are very um, skilled men in their lines of work, and because of their connections, that could serve as a great advantage to them. They are on a packet boat with nine seamen, captured, captained by a John Ferguson. Now, what is James Monroe doing at this time? He is serving in multiple cabinet positions. He serves in two posts, Secretary of State and War. Does James Monroe have a lot to be concerned about himself right now at this time? The answer is yes. Monroe himself is very worried about the British invasion of New York State from Canada. He's also concerned about the threats looming along the Mississippi River. He even sends a, um, a uh, what you call it, well, maybe what we would call it a telegram today, but a letter to Andrew Jackson. Now, we all know who Andrew Jackson is. Of course, he hasn't gotten 
the famous title of President of the United States yet, but he is down in Mobile, Alabama, and the letter he receives will tell him that he needs to um, send his uh, forces, including himself, to New Orleans. Because New Orleans, believe it or not, is the gateway to the Mississippi River. James Monroe also has, is worried about the threats that could pose to cities like Philadelphia, as well as to Norfolk and Richmond, Virginia. I think in the eyes of James Monroe, he knows that no city along the uh, coast is immune from an attack by the British. He already knows firsthand what, the, what Washington endured. So he's going to do whatever it takes to make all cities along the coast as fortified as possible, including Baltimore. I think by now it's safe to say James Monroe is almost 10 steps or more ahead of the disgraceful of the previous Secretary of War who turned out to be such a, a disgrace, being that um, despicable John Armstrong. Well, um, let's, let's ask this uh, question right here. On September 7th of 1814, Francis Scott uh, Key and John Stuart Skinner, actually, I'm going to, uh, before I get to that part, <laughs> a little false start right here there, people. Oh, well, it happens to the best of us, but uh, let me just talk about this right here. Were the British, under the command of Major General Robert Ross and Vice Admiral Alexander Cochran, ready to depart the Chesapeake Bay region at the start of September? Uh, the answer is yes. But what keeps them from making a full departure let me ask you this, though, first, too. Where were they going to go? Well, um, one of the officers wanted to go back to Bermuda. Another one wanted to sail further up north to Rhode Island so that their men could recuperate. And they, the goal was to uh, do an attack on Baltimore in a couple of months, like, say, November, or even better, come the winter of 1815. They wanted to wait a little bit longer, but what holds them back is an autumnal equinox, or what we might say equinox. It's where the sun crosses the equator and creates the year's highest tides and strongest tidal currents. The currents in the bay could pose a threat to larger British ships, and if the British tried leaving, their ships would have had to wait one to two weeks before sailing out. So let's remember this, people. The phases of the moon are not just for show. They serve as a purpose. The phases of the moon in the 18th and 19th century and perhaps earlier would give uh, sailors and people in general um, an indication of when it was best to sail on the high waters. Thomas Jefferson himself found this to be very useful as well. Matter of fact, Jefferson himself 
always believed that a ship had to be less than five years of age uh, in order to ensure um, safety, uh, or should I say it, to ensure a good uh, journey from America to uh, Europe and back. And if a ship was older than five years, he knew that the ship could run the risk of um, being in harm's way. I don't know how he got this uh, prediction, but that was based off of his observations and findings. So, yes, so to put it in a nutshell, people just couldn't uh, get on a boat when they felt like it and say, hey, I'm going to go to Europe um, starting tomorrow. I'm going to set sail to this for this country in a week or so. No, it was all based off of the phases of the moon that would indicate when it was um, safe to uh, sail based on the uh, currents or based on the tidal currents, in the, especially in the Chesapeake Bay. Now, to make matters um, more difficult for the British, September 7th of 1814 marked nearly three weeks since Washington got burned and Rear Admiral George Coburn's proposal to attack Baltimore got overturned. The lost time that the British had allowed during these three weeks had given American forces extra time to prepare for the Battle of Baltimore. Okay, here you've spent all this time celebrating your attack on Washington. You achieved that. And to make matters um, more interesting, the British are spending time um, destroying places ab above the Potomac River, um, including like Alexandria and Fort Washington. They're destroying these places, and while it may seem like a... Um, a great success considering that 21 of our ships were captured in the port of Alexandria during that time. The city of Baltimore once again had been given valuable time to prepare in terms of getting its walls of defense lines set up. And this also would, will include having a presence of 15,000 troops in Baltimore alone. Bottom line is this. Had the British, right after they burnt Washington, had they, had, had they already sent a group of men under the leadership of either Rear Admiral Coburn or Vice Admiral Cochrane up to Baltimore, they could have achieved their mission within a short period of time. And think about it. If they had done that, this war would have been over. America would have collapsed I don't even think we would be considered the United States of America anymore by this point. So the bottom line is the British have squandered major opportunities. And in the end, it's going to come back and bite them in the butt even more. So, um, on September 7th of 1814, Francis Scott Key and John Stuart Skinner make their way aboard the British ship Tunnant, or Tanant. It's where Dr. Beans was held captive. And K 
he and Skinner did make their did make a, a response, or what I should say, a plea to uh, British uh, superiors as to why Dr. Bean should be released. They received a cold-hearted response. Major General Robert Ross saw Dr. Beans as his personal prisoner. He wanted to be the one who would decide Beans' fate. But this changes when Ross himself receives letters written by British prisoners of war and how they as individuals were treated properly. And once Ross himself read over these letters, he too had a change in heart as well. So therefore, did Dr. Beans get released? Yes. It was a lot easier than Francis Scott Key himself thought would happen. But it, are, there, are the journey, or should I say, is this journey far from over? Yes, it is. It's not anywhere near being over. So, yes, it's, it's a huge accomplishment that Dr. Beans was released peacefully considering how inhumane he was treated when being arrested from his home. But Stuart, um, John Stuart Skinner and Francis Scott Key, along with Dr. Beans, are not going to be able to just go return home safely and, um, sing hap- and be happily ever after or live happily ever after at this moment. They are actually going to be uh, transferred to a British ship known as the HMS Surprise. And the other um, Americans, or the seamen, I should say, they're not going to be allowed to leave the enemy's ship for some time. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. But we also should keep out, we should also keep out in point that this is also what when it comes to uh, making sacrifices for freedom. So they're, in a sense, they're really not out of the woods, but this is just one of a handful of um, sacrifices that are in the process of being made. Now, um, on September 11th of, 20, of um, 1814, Francis Scott Key, John Stuart Skinner, and Dr. William Beans with the rest of the American crew were returned back to their sloop that they uh, had sp- that they had originally um, sailed under. But they were sent back to their sloop under a security of um, men, or should I say of uh, British personnel. The sloop itself would be anchored with Rear Admiral Coburn's ships in a place known as Old Rhodes Bay below Sparrows Point. So, this is, you know, getting Dr. Beans released is a small victory, is a huge victory. Being able to go back onto your own sloop, or should I say ship, where you uh, came into is a small victory. But there's still not a whole lot of room of of comfort overall, because just in large part due to all the uncertainty that's um, going on. Now, um... I can say this, that uh, before we uh, close for tonight, what can we say um, could happen uh, here down the road? Well, 
I think Doctor, I, I, I think that uh, Francis Scott Key is uh, still um, is still very um, worried about um, the future. He's worried about um, what's going to happen uh, because there's no guarantee that no matter um, where he is. He's got to watch from the distance, and he's got to be thinking to himself, is the city of Baltimore going to um, keep the American spirit alive? Is the city of Baltimore going to be the one that's going to uh, keep our government intact? And remember, folks, our government in Washington, we could pretty much say that it doesn't exist because, because the British still have control of it. There may not be forces uh, policing the area, but the rest of our uh, cabinet has um, had to relocate, say, to Baltimore or just on the outskirts of Baltimore just to be able to um, operate. So we still have a lot of uncertainty, but at the rate we're going right now in Baltimore, I feel pretty good about what lies at stake. It's not going to be a guarantee, but we've got over 15,000 men ready to go. We've got people working left and right to ensure that the city is going to be protected to the best of its ability. Well, folks, thank you for letting me uh, share in on another uh, podcast session tonight. I look forward to another one uh, coming up here soon. Take care, stay, stay safe, and God bless.